Hello and welcome to episode 172 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. What's going on, Ian? Well, it took us four tries to get that intro down. It did. So that's that's where I'm at right yeah, now. Yeah, uh, unusual for us to have to break it all, let alone like three times in the first. I uh, well, the first time through, I forgot my own name. The second time through, I forgot your name, and the third time through, I forgot the name of the podcast. So it all worked out. Yep, yep. The fourth time's a charm, is what I always say. All right, let's do it. How you doing, Jason? I'm good. It's it's hot. <laughs> my air conditioner's on. I'm considering even going to the office for some free air conditioning, and I don't think I'm alone in that. But uh, wow, it's hot. <laughs> it, it is. It is hot. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it's a nice day here, but elsewhere it is decidedly not nice, or or will soon be not nice. I've never been. I've never been excited not to be somewhere, but I'm kind of glad that I'm viewing the Farmer Air Show from very, very far away this year. Yeah. I won't be going to the Farnborough Air Show, but I will be in London during the air show. And every time I look at the forecast, the temperature Ooh. just keeps going up and up and up. Let's see. I think now, the, the highest was 38 last ah, time I looked. Yeah. Monday is a high of 96 American degree units, which is very high. What is that? Like nearly 40? Nearly 40. Yeah, yeah. 30, 30, 39. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not going to be pleasant. Yeah, 35 or 36? Okay. Not, not great. So the high, the high went down, I guess, is the – or maybe I was looking no. at the, the heat index. Yeah, you were probably looking at that, that. But yeah, thankfully, I will hopefully be in a very air-conditioned office that whole time if I get there at all. All right. Well, I, I wish you – Nothing but the best Thank in your you. journeys. And anyone who is going to Farnborough, good luck. Or anywhere. Stay hydrated. <laughs> uh, yeah, really, yeah, if you're going anywhere. Uh, th that's an excellent segue into our continued coverage of what we titled last episode, The Summer of Suck. It continues. This is It, it does continue. I mean, we're, we're there. there's new bits and pieces, but the trend is roughly the same. It's not great flying right now. Airlines are struggling. Airports are struggling. There are myriad problems getting people from point A to point B where they need to be, when they need to be there. And we continue our coverage with some some interesting and novel problem solving. And this comes to us from Iceland Air. So as we've covered, I think, over the past oh, month, two, uh, two, almost two, two and a half months now, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam has been, I don't want to call it a disaster area, but it has been extremely difficult to, to fly into, out of, or through the airport in Amsterdam. And Iceland Air came up with a, a novel solution to ensure that their flights are operating on time because one of the issues has been baggage handling. So Iceland Air, since last Friday, has been flying in two of its own baggage handlers on every flight to Amsterdam to ensure that the bags are loaded and the aircraft departs relatively on time. Yeah, that's uh, quite the novel situation. Typically, when you have airline employees tagging along on flights, they're like mechanics because they're flying to some far-flung exotic location like the United Island Hopper on the 7-3. If you break down on one of those islands, you're going to want a mechanic with you. Typically, you don't need to pack your own ground handlers. So this is – I'm sure it's been done before, but this is uh, – this is a desperate move to bring back some sort of operational reliability here for, for Iceland there. So hats off to them because I've definitely seen 
that uh, anyone checking a bag that happens to go through Amsterdam, it's just not happening. So even if Icelandair brings their own baggage handlers into uh, Schiphol, there's no guarantee that there are bags there at the side of the plane for them to load. They might be stuck somewhere else in the system. But good on them for going well above and beyond the, the bare minimum here to get something done. Yeah, I, I mean they they were just they were just having such a tough time that I don't know who at the airline came up with this, but I mean I, I think it's if this is in fact helping, which it seems to be since they they've continued to do it since last Friday. This seems like a, a great idea and and really a, a novel approach to to making sure that the aircraft leaves on time because with with Icelandair's schedule, aircraft goes out aircraft comes back. If the aircraft doesn't come back, it then can't go out and it's one of those cascading delay situations. Anything they can do, good for them. Yeah, especially at Amsterdam, which continues to be one of the worst bottlenecks in the the global aviation system right now. Uh, I know we talked last week about how my my parents are departing shortly, tomorrow actually, for a cruise that leaves out of Europe. And they had the honor of being booked on KLM through Amsterdam. And then they rebooked on Delta an hour early to give some extra time. But then KLM canceled sort of their connecting flight out of Amsterdam, but they didn't tell anyone really. This is, I tweeted about this earlier today where KLM is really not even going beyond the bare minimum here of trying to make its irregular operations less of a pain than it needs to be. So basically what they did is Amsterdam put the cap on the number of flights and KLM has to cancel thousands of flights. Unfortunately, my parents were booked on one of those flights, but while Kalem canceled the flight, they didn't update the uh, schedules that gets distributed to pretty much everyone, including Flight Radar 24. So if you look at the the status for their flight, it's still shown as operating and scheduled by, by everybody except for KLM. And had my dad not just happened to go look at their uh, reservation, he probably wouldn't have known that the flight was canceled and would have been way later in getting rebooked to an Air France flight through Paris. Thankfully, there was still an option. But really, another one of those circumstances, which goes to show, be more prepared than you have ever been before. Definitely make sure that the airline has your contact information. There's a chance that if you booked on an OTA like Expedia or Kayak, that the airline might not have your direct contact information and you might not be notified when something changes, even if you use flight tracking apps. So uh, go out of your way and keep an eye on your flights this summer. Yeah, I fielded a few questions from people asking, you know, should I book travel? And my answer lately has been, no. maybe not if you don't have to. But the one thing I have recommended to people is do not book on an OTA. Book directly with the airline and make sure that all of your information is available. Fill out all of those, text me if anything happens. Fill out all of that, email me if anything happens. Because it, like like you said, Airlines are doing a lot of things to to try and manage this. And one of the creative things, I, and I'm using creative in, in scare quotes here, things that they've done is zero out inventory, but not actually cancel flights. So so they might be moving you, but they might not be telling you right away. Yeah. And, and particularly with this flight from my parents, KLM canceled the flight and then Delta didn't do anything. They just dropped the segment off their itinerary. So instead of uh, going to going to their destination, it just terminated their outward flight at Amsterdam. And had they not realized that until they got to the airport, it probably would have been a very bad day. 
you you live in Amsterdam now. Congratulations. Okay, yeah. You you're a bag handler now. You've been drafted by Iceland Air. <laughs> Get to it. I mean, worse things have happened. They I guess. probably have good benefits. I don't know. There you go. Let's go from Amsterdam to London or back to London, I guess, and talk about what happened earlier in the week. London's Heathrow Airport is saying that they will cap operations at 100,000 passengers per day for the next couple of months. That brings the stress on the airport down a little bit. But our, our good friend Seth Miller notes that there's a hitch. So airlines to to meet that cap or get under that cap can either cancel flights or just have fewer passengers on their existing flights. Seth and I think most of us would agree that canceling some of those flights and having full flights for the remaining flights are the most economic choice for the airline and what makes the most sense as far as having the number of flight crews and cabin crews and ground crews and all of these things because you're handling fewer flights. The regulators in the UK said, well, that's all well and good, but the slot rules for Heathrow still apply. So you need to use 80% of your of your slots or you risk losing those slots. As we've talked about before on the podcast, slots at London's Heathrow Airport are among the most, if not the most coveted slots in the world. Airlines have traded and begged and borrowed, and I don't want to accuse any specific airlines, but some have probably stolen to get slots at Heathrow Airport. So for them to say, well, you need to use them all or or you're going to lose them, you're going to end up with not necessarily fewer flights, but fewer fewer flights total, but not as few as would be economically sensible. Yeah, this whole thing is ridiculous. And this has been an ongoing theme for years now, all throughout COVID with uh, landing slots, especially at Heathrow. Here in New York, we have two slot-controlled airports, and, and really, it seems like we've, we've worked around most of those issues. But the regulators in the UK, they are just being incredibly inflexible, but at the same time, mercifully going after the airlines in Heathrow for their poor performance but not letting them cancel flights at the same time. None of this makes any sense, but honestly, I'm just surprised there's anyone left in the UK government to tell them they can't cancel any flights. I thought everyone quit last week. <laughs> I, I think these are civil servants, so oh, they're, okay. they're sticking around. That's yeah, good. I, I, don't think, I don't think that's a problem here. But it, it's just one of the – it's like – Why? The, why Why are they being so inflexible here? This helps nobody. The, the lack – yeah, I, I get – is it institutional inertia? Is it, I, I don't even know what you would call it, but the lack of flexibility here in order to, to ensure that people buying airplane tickets and traveling, airlines operating flights are, are doing their best to make everything work. And they're saying, no, this would be an easy thing to do. Yeah. Not I don't great. know why. Not a good look. So- Good luck to the airlines, especially BA, since obviously they have an outsized presence at Heathrow. So good luck trying to meet the uh, meet the 
the passenger cap, which I, I honestly isn't all that much lower than what they're actually operating at now. Wh- but which makes the whole not allowing yeah. any flexibility on the slots even more ridiculous. I mean, we're talking about like a few thousand passengers a day, isn't it? it it's not – the cap isn't significantly below – what they're operating at. It's not like Amsterdam right now, but it, it seems right. more like an idea they want to do, but it, it, they have no practical way of actually doing it. Yeah. Common sense. Just common sense, people. You know who has a lot of common sense? Dare I ask? The Germans. <laughs> Go on, sir. Go Lufthansa on. is canceling another two thousand flights and that comes on top of their already reduced schedule. Yeah, things are not getting any better really anywhere you look in Europe. But 2,000 connections at both Frankfurt and Munich hubs will be affected through the end of August. That's on top of the, what was it, 770 other flights before that that were already canceled. So this is a significant increase, not just a, a slight increase over what was already done. But really, it's, it's just it's not good anywhere. Well, and don't don't forget the the initial cut, which was in the thousands. It was two thousand and change. Was the initial the initial cut at the beginning of the summer through July and August? Then there was that that mid mid July cut, and now there's the next next cut into end of July, begin or through the end of August. It's a lot of. I mean. Lufthansa's base, the Lufthansa Group really has basically done the same thing BA did, but piecemeal. Yeah, you know where where BA just came out and said, you know what, through the end of August, we're, we're going to do ten thousand flights off the top. Where Lufthansa said, well, we're not going to cut that many. Yeah, we are. They, they, they were, were they were hedging their bets at Lufthansa, yeah. and, and clearly they have recognized that uh, there is nothing to hedge. Everything is terrible, and they need to reduce the schedule by another factor of two thousand flights. Good, good try. But having flown through a couple uh, or, or Hamburg last month, it was very evident that their airports cannot take the the load of passengers going through their airports right now. And we'll 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 get to this later in the show from Delta today when we talk about some earnings reports. But some of the things that came out in Delta's earnings report, a lot of the a lot of what we've been saying was finally acknowledged by Delta CEO Ed Bastian. But we'll we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. Let's move on now to a few updates on accidents and investigations that we have previously covered. Or and not. One new one. Or, yeah. Well, we'll start with the, the new one that we haven't talked about at all and then move on from there. So first up is we always talk about accidents or, or incidents and talking about how there's never just one you know, there's never just one thing. It's always a, a, a series of incidents that lead to to a, a dangerous situation. And this that certainly, that. <laughs> it, it certainly is what happened here. So this concerns a, uh, and I'm I'm using the BEA, the French BEA, uh, Accident Investigation Board's classifications here. This is a serious incident to an Airbus A320 registered 9HEMU. This is an Airhub Airlines operated a320. They were operating for Norwegian, I believe. Norwegian, and the flight was coming from Stockholm to Paris. And the things kind of start to go downhill when they're setting up for the approach, and the approach controller gave them the wrong altimeter setting. So 
when you're above a certain altitude, you use the standard altimeter setting, which uh, in, in hectopascals is 1013.25. And that's the, the standard atmosphere. So all the airline, all aircraft operating above that are using that. So even if you're, you're not exactly at the altitude that the standard pressure indicates, everyone agrees on it. So you're not going to crash into each other. Once you go below that, that transition altitude, you switch over to the local pressure so that everyone is in agreement in that area, again, so aircraft don't crash into each other, and also the ground. The problem here is that the controller gave them the wrong altimeter setting, known as the, the QNH, which is the, the, the local reference value. So what the controller should have said was 1001. What the controller did say was 1011. Yeah, and the pilot on the radio of this particular flight, read back the incorrect altimeter setting, and then that was not corrected by the controller. And the controller then gave the incorrect altimeter setting to the following flight, which I think may have been EasyJet, but that the uh, pilot of that aircraft actually caught the mistake and read back the correct altimeter setting, which yet again was not caught by the controller, unfortunately. And there was also a an Air France crew that the controller gave the correct QNH, Air France read back the correct QNH. And then the crew from the incident aircraft was still operating with the incorrect value. Their first they made a, a first approach, and the the first approach put the aircraft uh, due to the, and I'll quote from the, the report here, due to the incorrect QNH setting, 10011 instead of 10001 or 101001, the altitude value displayed on the aircraft instruments was around 280 feet above the real aircraft altitude. The flight crew were thus conducting an RMP approach with LNAV, VNAV minima around 280 feet below the published approach descent profile. Yeah, it, it's basically the plot from Die Hard 2. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah, that's that's what it is. Yeah, not great. So what transpired beyond that point when the aircraft was on approach, uh, this was in, in bad weather with very minimal visibility. For whatever reason, the, the controllers did not have the approach lights on into De Gaulle that day for that particular runway. And as the aircraft ascended through a, a rather dangerous altitude, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, something called I guess you would say MSAW, I'm not sure how to pronounce the abbreviation, but MSAW, the Minimum Safe Altitude Warning, was displayed to the controller at De Gaulle, or I'm not sure if this was on the De Gaulle's controller or the approach controller, but the Minimum Safe Altitude Warning was was displayed to the controller, who didn't really convey the urgency of just how serious that warning is to the crew. And yeah, just, there's a lot of breakdown in communication, a lot of breakdown in procedure. But Ian, what happened next after the uh, alert was issued? So after the alert was issued, it took the, the controller nine seconds to, to ask the, the AirHub crew if, if they were okay. Uh, AirHub said that they were going around. They commenced their go around about one one nautical mile from the runway threshold, and they continued to fly. 
I'll quote again from the report. Three seconds later at 1141.50, at an indicated altitude of 679 feet, QNH 1011, which would be 405 feet, QNH 1001, the, the correct QNH, the minimum radio altitude height was recorded at six feet above the ground. Six feet. The aircraft, six feet above the ground. The aircraft was 0.8 nautical miles from the runway threshold. At the same time, the captain moved the thrust levers forward into the toga detent, and then the aircraft began to climb. Yeah. Six feet means if I were standing in that spot, the aircraft would have hit me in the head. That is how low the aircraft was and how close it was to impacting the ground. There were a couple of minimum safe altitude warnings issued. There was a delay between the flight crew hearing these war- or being told of these warnings and activating TOGA, the takeoff go-around mode. Most concerningly, and this is called out by the investigation here by the BEA, for some reason, the, the terrain altitude warning system did not activate on this approach, which is something they're definitely going to want to look at. So basically, the, the only warning this crew had that they were dangerously low and nearly impacting the ground was the controllers, the ATC side's warning system, the aircraft's own alert system, TAWS, uh, terrain, what is it, terrain awareness warning system? or uh, The acronym escapes me at the moment. Yeah, me too. The thing on the plane <laughs> that the radio altimeter should be using yes. to alert the crew that, hey, you're about to hit the ground, didn't activate. That's That's not great. The BEA goes on to say that they're looking into the triggering of radio altimeter auto callouts in the aircraft, uh, the settings and configuration for MSAW at CDG, the MSAW phraseology used by the air traffic controllers, which was definitely not up to standards, the flight crew air traffic controller training and procedures, additional ground and onboard systems to prevent controlled flight into terrain during approaches, all sorts of other things. Basically, sheer luck saved this flight from being flown into the ground. Maybe not luck, but impeccable timing that the crew decided to go around exactly when and where they did. This should have been and probably could have been extremely bad. And and we didn't know about this really until the BEA published this report this week. Yeah. So two things, terrain alert and warning system. Thank you. So or terrain awareness and warning system is the generic name. The the one that we're more familiar with is is Honeywell's branded name. Yes. And this I didn't know that, that this was a Honeywell branded ground proximity warning system or enhanced ground proximity warning system. I didn't know that was uh, a brand issue. Ah, I didn't either. You learn something new every day. Okay. That, that is what I have learned today. The interesting thing about the first approach, and then we'll get to the second approach in just a second. The first approach the the controller could not see the aircraft, could not physically see the aircraft. There was no visual connection between the controller and the aircraft because of the poor weather. So so that's a, another I mean, the, the kind of the mistakes compounding themselves, and then that that little bit where they just couldn't see the aircraft because if they had been able to see the aircraft, I'm sure they would have said something there. So a, a few things there. So. The aircraft climbs, they're still operating with the incorrect QNH. So everything that just happened in the first approach is going to happen again. And the aircraft 
circles back around. The aircraft lines up again. They had not switched on the approach lights. The second time around, they switched on the approach lights. They come back. The controller says, you're a little low. Are you okay? And then the pilot understands because apparently the visibility had improved ever so slightly because they got another another terrain warning. The pilot said, no, we can see where we're going now. And they landed fine on the second on the second approach. Yeah, as Jason said, this could have been so much worse. Yeah, this could have been well as bad as it gets. It would have been controlled flight into terrain because of one little setting that uh, unfortunately a number of people did not catch. And yeah, I understand that when you're reading back something like that to air traffic controllers, they're probably just assuming you got it right, especially something like the altimeter setting. It's such a, a minor thing, but turns out it's really not minor. It can be really, really not minor. And there's lots of recommendations by the BEA, quote here, whereas in the short time span of this event, two controllers did not notice the readback of an incorrect UNH, whereas MSAW system, when available, can be considered as one of the last barriers to avoid controlled fight into terrain, whereas MSAW phraseology was not used and the QNH information was not repeated. Then they go on basically to say that ensure that without delay that controllers actually reply or get the right phraseology and make it very clear to the pilots that that alert has been issued and something is wrong, not to take nine seconds and ask, are you okay? So lots of, uh, let's say, retraining, maybe not retraining, but lots of modifications lots of brushing up on procedure will need to be done i I think the the interesting thing here is you know the the problem that that call sign confusion or or the work on call sign confusion all that work has gone into is basically the same thing here where the difference between 1011 or 1011 and 1001 i mean they're they over the radio they sound close enough and if they're confused once you can go back and think, okay, I, I heard what I heard, or I didn't hear what I didn't hear, and, and without asking for clarification, because you think you heard what you heard, you end up with an, an incorrect setting. It's an and, easy mistake. And, yeah, and, and problems. So you know, I'm, I'm very glad everything ended well. This is one of those things where the investigation into an incident is so thorough. Whereas we could just sit here and go, well, they heard, you know, 1011 when they should have heard 1001 and being like, oh yeah, that's an easy mistake to make and left it at that. Like, oh, don't, don't do that again. No, the investigation by the BEA is so thorough to look at what happened, how it happened and how you can fix it. I, I just think there, there is so much to learn outside of aviation by looking at how aviation incidents and accidents are investigated. And, and I know I've harped on this before and and called out the, the NTSB in the US and the BEA in France, but I, I'm never not impressed by how detailed and and thorough these investigations are, even for, for what seems like a, a minor error. Yeah. And uh we have two more to cover. The next one, the uh, the conclusion by the NTSB is a uh, little more simple, isn't it? I, 
<laughs> I, this I mean, one's still just you gotta laugh at this one, right? I mean, not I laugh guess. because a plane did you know crash, and thankfully no one no one was injured or, or seriously injured. Yeah, uh, a run runway excursion, yeah. To use the the technical technical phrase, the here, defining but, event was wrong surface or wrong airport by the NTSB, yeah. and the aircraft damage was substantial. But uh, back in March fourth, twenty nineteen, in Persk Isle, Maine, I think I got that right. Who is operating this? I don't even know. It doesn't say. But an E-145 out of, I think it was Newark, operating for United Express, was on the ILS and was approaching runway one and appeared to be proceeding normally. And I'm quoting the NTSB here until the first officer, who was the pilot flying, transitioned from instrument references inside the flight deck to outside references. During the post-accident interview, the first officer stated that he expected to see the runway at that time, but instead saw white on white and a structure with an antenna that was part of the runway environment, but not the runway itself. Yeah, I hope an antenna you see is not a part of the runway itself, but goes on to say the captain, pilot monitoring, stated that she saw a tower and called for a go-around. So I'm going to skip a little ahead here and go to the the second approach. So they the the flight crew aborted the first approach. They went around and they came back again. They were attempting to turn the lights on for the runway using the pilot controlled lighting which uses a couple clicks of the uh, the mic key. They came back around. They disconnected the autopilot. 9 seconds later they reached the decision altitude and the captain said runway in sight 12 o'clock. But then the officer, the first officer said I'm staying on the flight director because I don't see it yet. A few seconds later, when the airplane was below 100 feet above ground level, the captain and first officer expressed confusion, saying, what the expletive deleted, I don't know what I'm seeing, but neither of them called for a go-around. What apparently happened was that there was a, a buildup of snow in front of the ILS antenna, which basically shifted the radio transmission to the aircraft by an amount that actually put them well off the center line and off to the side of the runway in what would have been, I guess, grass if there was no snow. But there was so much snow on the ground at the time, they couldn't really discern the difference between what was runway and what was snow off to the side of the runway. And it's just a really weird localizer misalignment thing that they said the ILS localizer and glide slope revealed that the localizer was out of tolerance by about 200 feet to the right. After the accident, the airport conducted snow removal operations in the area around and in front of the localizer array, and they discovered snow depths that ranged from about 2 feet to 5 feet. After the snow was removed, a flight check determined that the localizer signal was in alignment. And then it goes on to, to talk about how, well, the airport wasn't clearing any snow away from the ILS localizer because nobody told them to. Just a, one of these really, really weird procedure things where the local airport authority didn't know they needed to clear the snow out of the localizer area because nobody had reported any issues and they weren't going to do it unless someone from the FAA center, probably in Boston, told them to do it. Just a really, really strange accident here caused by nothing but uh, a couple feet of snow. I, I mean, to, to be fair, and the NTSB does address this, the captain of the aircraft had a lot to do continuing the approach, even though they should not have. Yes. And I think that's uh, what I mentioned earlier, where they said they right. couldn't actually see the runway, but they continued below the decision uh, altitude anyway, and, and attempted to make the landing, which 
wasn't even on the runway because they couldn't see where the runway was. But just the some very odd circumstances there about uh, snow removal procedures around critical infrastructure like the ILS localizer. And, and to note, as always, with the BEA report and this report and the, the next one we're going to talk about, they will be in the show notes if you enjoy a little light reading. The BEA report, I think, is a little over a dozen pages and nearly two dozen pages. And the NTSB report in this case is comes in at a brisk 23. So by no means the longest reports we've ever seen. Let's go over to the UK and talk about their AAIB and discuss an incident we covered after, right after it happened back in April of 2021. We didn't know much at the time. We knew there had been an accident with this aircraft. Uh, the AIB's final report is now out. And Jason, explain this one to me as if not if I'm a five-year-old, maybe three and a half, four at best, because we're talking about an aircraft that is being designed to operate on a hydrogen fuel cell. Yeah. And and that's not what caused the incident. No, I will explain it to you in words uh, that I can read off the AIB report that I'm just learning as I go as well, because it turns out there are not many experts in the field of hydrogen battery electric aircraft flight testing right now. But this one- Not yet. Uh, not yet. But the AIB had a lot to say about this particular accident. It was a Piper PA46-350P registration G-HYZA, which was owned by Zero Avia, I think. It is their hydrogen test aircraft. And they have a lot to what say. Was. So, was, yes. was, because it doesn't have a wing and it crashed now, but uh, maybe they'll patch it back up. But what happened basically is it's an electrically powered aircraft with electrical power from hydrogen fuel cells. It suffered a loss of power to the electrical motors and that forced a, well, that eventually led up to a forced landing, which severely damaged the aircraft, though the crew thankfully was unharmed. I'll read directly here. The loss of power occurred during an interruption of the power supply when, as a part of the test procedure, the battery was selected to off with the intention of leaving the electrical motor solely powered by the hydrogen fuel cell. So what they wanted to do was test, can this airplane fly purely off the hydrogen on board, not using the batteries? However, anyone who's been on a uh, propeller-driven aircraft where you turn off the engine, you'll know that the, or maybe if you're on a propeller aircraft and you've shut down one of your engines, it windmills. And it's still, unless you feather it and stop, stop the thing from windmilling, it will keep turning. What happened here is during the interruption, their planned interruption, the windmilling propeller on the aircraft generated enough voltage that it was high enough to operate the inverter protection system. Basically, it backfed voltage into the system, and the inverter protection locked out power to the motor, and the pilot and the observer weren't unable to restore the system and restore electrical power, which basically meant they had a total loss of propulsion and they couldn't restart it. The AIB goes into saying the these factors led contributed, maybe not led, but contributed to the accident. And the list is a doozy, and it does not look good for this particular company. But I'll start from the top. I'll be quick. Sufficient ground testing had not been carried out to determine the effect of back voltage from a windmilling propeller on the inverter protection system. The emergency procedure to clear an inverter lock out after the protection 
operated was ineffective. An investigation had not been carried out into previous loss of power resulting from an inverter lock, which occurred three flights prior to the accident flight. Risk assessment had not been reviewed following the loss of propulsion on two prior flights. Ad hoc changes were made to the flight test plan last minute, including the position where the electrical power source was switched without the knowledge of, and I'm quoting here, the competent person. The competent person's involvement was restricted in a number of areas that it probably shouldn't have been. The project tempo, they say, was too fast. Other work commitments and restrictions because of COVID at the time impacted the test. And this is my favorite one. The operator's chief executive and flight test director took on day-to-day management responsibility for much of the program. However, neither individual had the necessary safety and flight test experience for that role, and their focus was primarily on meeting key project targets. Nothing good here. Uh, A lot of of bad news. Very bad luck for this company that basically they were running a very seemingly dangerous flight test program. I mean, the the balance of the the factors contributing to the accident are, are basically saying to me at least, you're moving way too fast and you're doing it wrong. And yeah. it led to this aircraft crashing into the ground. Basically, yeah. Uh, you're going too fast. You don't have the right people doing the right things. And you haven't addressed problems that have come up in prior flights without reproducing those problems in the next test flights. So nothing good here. Nothing good no, happened. No, nothing good. Again, this run is is in the in the show notes. And this is one of the things where you start reading and you're like, oh, okay, that that's interesting. I hadn't considered that. But I'm not building uh, hydrogen-powered uh, electrically switched aircraft. And then it gets into the people who are running the show have also no idea what's going on here. And that gets very concerning very quickly. Yeah, that's problematic. Okay, where do we go from here? We go over to Boeing. The FAA is mandating action uh, regarding the Boeing 787. And this is separate from all of the quality build issues, but it is not, Jason, separate from a lot of the issues that have been addressed in this particular system in the past. And, and you noted this quite quite well, good sir. Yeah, thank you. The 787 has some odd history with the, the firefighting system on board, dating all the way back to 2013, when a wiring fault could lead to an improper discharging of fire suppressant into the wrong engine, which is not great. So if there was a fire in the left engine and one of the flight crew tried to discharge the the fire extinguishing bottle into the left engine, it may have actually done that into the right engine. And then you possibly have an engine that's on fire and then an engine that doesn't work at all because you've put out, you've uh, used the fire extinguishing bottle. That was 2013. 2019, fire extinguisher switches failed in a small number of instances. And then again here in 2022, which I don't know, maybe it's related to the 2019 incident, uh, FOD, that's foreign object debris, in the fire switches could lead to failure of or uncommanded activation of the fire switches. Not great. It just seems like such an odd thing, an oddly specific thing to keep having issues with, a particular system that you really don't want to have issues with ever. No. When you have a fire on board an aircraft, one of the most serious, serious things that can happen, you want to be able to put that fire out as quickly as possible. Not having working fire protection is not great. Nope. And I'm using not great here as a 
I don't even know what you would call it. Understatement? Yeah, but uh, Boeing is on it. Understatement? Boeing is on it. The FAA is on it. The airlines are on it. And hopefully this is a, a non-issue in uh, a very short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those things where, where it, it's a problem. We, we saw the problem. We're fixing the problem. A problem that may not be fixed in short or, or ever is the 737-10 MAX. The Boeing is facing an end of the year deadline or roughly the end of the year. It, I forget the exact date in December, but the 737-10 MAX needs to be certified by a certain date at the end of December or Boeing needs to add flight deck system changes that include a crew alerting system. So so basically any CAS into the the MAX 10 if they don't have it certified by the end of the year. In an interview with Aviation Week last week, Boeing CEO David Calhoun said, the Dash 10, and I'm quoting here, the Dash 10 is a little bit of an all or nothing. I think our case is persuasive enough that we get there. This is a risk I'm willing to take. If I lose the fight, I lose the fight. And the Aviation Week editors that they were interviewing him followed up said, so you would not build the Dash 10 in that case, saying that if it's not certified by the end of the year, Boeing will just walk away. Calhoun says, I think we'd end up having to face right into that question. We believe in this airplane period. We believe the intent of the counterparties that negotiated the, the flight crew alert mandate timeframe wanted this airplane covered. And I find very few voices that would suggest otherwise. So he, what he's saying is that between Boeing and Congress, which passed the law mandating crew alerting systems in future aircraft, He's saying that they did not have the the Max Ten in mind when they said that new aircraft have to have to include this. So so that's you know what he's up against. Boeing is is basically at the mercy of Congress to change the law to allow the Dash Ten to be certified without the alerting system. If if certification goes beyond the end of the year, which Boeing has basically said, yeah, that's. That's not going to happen. We're not going to get this done by the end of the year. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens if, assuming the aircraft doesn't get certified by the end of the year, does Congress act? Does Boeing act by not building the Dash 10? And if Boeing reacts by not building the Dash 10, what happens to A, all the orders that that have been placed for the Dash 10, and, and B, what do airlines do to backfill those aircraft that they thought they were going to be able to have. Yeah, that's a doozy. This was, of, of course, something that came out just hours after we recorded, so we would have covered it last week, hopefully. But even just the idea that a major manufacturer like Boeing would roll out an aircraft like this, put it through flight testing for a long time, and then not be legally allowed to certify and deliver it, that's, that is not something I saw coming. Yes, it is time that Boeing gets out of the 1960s with the 737 and, and puts the enhanced systems on board that aircraft. But wow, it is literally going to take an act of Congress for Boeing to be able to certify the MAX 10, which may not happen. I don't know. Clearly, they want it to happen. They don't want to just throw in the towel and not be able to deliver. And United alone has 250 of these on order. So that would be a major burden for a number of airline fleets to not be able to have this aircraft. But uh, keep an eye on this one. This is going to be fun. 
Yeah. I mean, we, we've got six months to figure this out. And it, it's not going to happen. Congress is not going to not going to slide the date on this. I, I mean, I, I have a feeling there's going to be some Frankenstein like compromise. But I can't even imagine at this point what it is. I can no. only just imagine a, a Frankenstein-like compromise. But I mean, this is this is a, a real tough spot for both Boeing and for the U.S. Congress. I mean, because you're coming up and saying these are things that are necessary for safety. It, it was the object lesson of the, of the congressional action and, and passage of this law. These are things that are necessary for for aviation safety. And then to come back and say, but not for the seventh. 737 MAX 10, not for the Dash 10. That's not what this is. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a different story. That's a tough sell to me. Although then Boeing comes back and says, well, but it's a question. United has 250 of these on order. What do you think about that? So th- there will be some Frankenstein-like compromise and no one will be happy outside of uh, of Boeing and, and some folks in Congress. That's my prediction for this. I will be very interested to see how wrong I am. If the deadline for this is January 1st, 2023 at midnight, a deal will be struck on December 31st, 2022 at 11.59 <laughs> At 11.59. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of uh, striking deals and the economics of it all, let's move to a section of the podcast that we have titled Money, Money, Money. Airline earnings season is in full swing, as is air framers. Jason, I'm going to go a little bit out of order here and talk about, stick with Boeing and talk about their second quarter deliveries. Tell me how many planes, where did they go, all that good fun stuff. All right. Second quarter deliveries, 121 from Boeing, the most by far, of course, 103, 737s. Good to see the the max getting out the door these days. That's 189 total year to date so far. Two 747s, three for the year. Seven 767s, yeah, they're still making those, 12 for the year. Nine 777s, 12 for the year. And a big fat zero 787s delivered both in the second quarter and year to date, but we already knew that. Yes. Yeah. Still no 787 deliveries. No. But but this was the best quarter since 2019 for Boeing delivery-wise, somehow doing that without a single 787 delivered. And and on the 787 front, photos of Lufthansa's first 787 in its German registry have been seen. So, so the Boeing temporary reg has been peeled off. The German permanent registry has been painted on. Uh, and that is another good sign. I dare say, for the uh, for the seven eight seven resumption of seven eight seven deliveries. Excellent. I will hope that that I will hope that that happens. Delta was the talk of the Wall Street town today with a seven hundred and thirty five million dollar profit, and they in their earnings call some really interesting stuff came out. One of the things was that Ed Bastian saying that not hiring, not having enough people isn't the problem. Having people who are trained and know what they are doing is. Yes, but they are certainly not alone in that regard. This is pretty much industry-wide where even airlines and airports that are fully staffed, they're not operating at capacity like they should be. Because everyone's new and they don't really have the experience to know what how to do things most efficiently. Not great. Yeah. 
Yeah, everything we say about Delta over the next few minutes applies basically to the entire industry, but Delta was the first to have their earnings call, and so we get to pick on them just a little bit. By no means is this is any of this really Delta specific. It's industry-wide, but Delta was the first to have their earnings call and and really come out and say these things. So so what Delta also said uh, is basically we've been we've been working our narrow body aircraft too hard. They, what they didn't say is because they got rid of most of their wide bodies at the beginning of the pandemic, but that's what happened, and so they're having you know trouble with operating the requisite number of flights. They said they overextended their schedule. They're learning from that and they're pairing back and they're trying to get as many flights back to where they want to be operationally from from where they had been. One thing that caught my eye that was just confusing to me, why this happened or, or for what reason this happened, Delta operated, and on the earnings call, they said it was a charter flight, but this is not, it, they didn't like send the plane just for this. The plane was already there. There was a, a flight from Detroit to London that landed. The return flight from London to Detroit was canceled, part of the operational disaster show that Heathrow is. Instead of flying the passengers, to back to Detroit. They loaded up a thousand bags that were supposed to be already in Detroit or elsewhere from London because the operation has gotten so bad that there were a thousand bags left at Heathrow. And they flew those 1,000 suitcases to Detroit and then onward from Detroit to, to wherever they were supposed to be. My question, I guess, is they were just going to leave them otherwise? I guess there are. This is a weird thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you can rebook passengers, but if the plane's there, why would you do that? I mean, you can get the bags back to Detroit in other ways. I mean, spread them over other flights, but it was just the the whole thing didn't make any sense. And and the way that it came out on the earnings call was they were like bragging about it. We we chartered a flight just to go get this back. No, that's not what happened. The plane was there. You canceled the flight. People were reaccommodated on other flights, which I'm not sure why. Then you use that aircraft to bring the bags back when they should have been brought back anyway. I, I don't understand. Yeah, prioritizing bags instead of passengers and then bragging about it. That's a weird flex. I, 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 I just didn't understand. Let's see what else we've got going on. So this was a fascinating example of things that, that – are old, are new again. Jason, tell me about the McDonald's coffee, but this time it's hot chocolate on an airplane. So yeah, there's this story from decades ago that many people don't actually fully understand. The the infamous McDonald's hot coffee incident where people think, oh, someone, some woman carelessly spilled coffee on herself and sued McDonald's and won millions. But that's not really the full story. Not at all the full story. What actually happened was that McDonald's was knowingly brewing coffee far hotter than it needed to be and this poor woman had like third degree burns all over herself and she ended up suing mcdonald's in that case and won rightfully so we have here a, a case of an 11 year old boy who was burned by hot chocolate on an Aer Lingus flight recently and was awarded a settlement in the high court of 66,000 pounds which is uh euros. euros euros sorry not pounds euros a very interesting case this dates all the way back on flight uh, on a flight October 2018, where as a part of, I'm actually familiar with this product, but uh, as a part of 
how you assemble it basically is you're given uh, a cup of hot water and then you have to take a lid off of the cup and then you add milk to the drink. And in, in this case, unfortunately, due to whatever circumstance, the, the boy spilled the liquid on his thigh and it caused burns. He was taken to the hospital at their destination. He was uh, kept overnight, received painkillers, anti-inflammatories. A nurse assisted him on board the flight and his wounds had to be dressed for a number of weeks. So it's just very interesting to see uh, a case very similar to the McDonald's case of basically ancient lore at this point uh, happening on board a flight. Very interesting. But he sued Aer Lingus, alleging a failure to provide a safe method of service of hot drinks, in particular a hot chocolate, and failure to warn the boy of the danger posed by the temperature of the drink. I mean, I assume the lid said caution, hot contents or whatever, because the coffee is kind of similar. But somehow I have a feeling the coffee brewed on this aircraft or the water boiled on the aircraft is probably hotter than it needed to be. Yeah. I mean, it just an interesting kind of set of circumstances. One that uh, is not, you know, kind of out of, uh, out of the realm of possibility, but interesting to see it actually happen. Bright side, the boy was okay. You know, he, he wasn't too severely burned. He, there was luckily a nurse on board and uh, he was, he was okay after, after a few weeks. But uh, but glad to see that that all is all is well now. We now turn our focus to a story that we've been covering on and on and on and on again, and we are of course referring to the Spirit Airlines merger acquisition with Frontier JetBlue. Who knows what's happening? We're not going to get into anything that's happened because nothing has really happened. But we do want to get an official update from our chief mergers and acquisitions correspondent, Airline Weekly Editor now. Congratulations, Ned, on the recent promotion. Ned Russell. Ned, has Spirit held a vote yet? Not even close, Ian. Thank you, Ned. Thanks, Ned. In other news. That's my new favorite segment. (laughs) Hopefully, we only have to do it that one time. In other news, there is a great report out on the, the future of electric aircraft or, or the potential future of electric aircraft that is is both good news and bad news in the sense that uh, the good news isn't, I guess, good enough. The report from the International Council on Clean Transportation, ICCT, entitled Performance Analysis of Regional Electric Aircraft out today. Hey, this is kind of breaking-ish news. They looked at the CO2 mitigation potential of evolutionary electric-powered aircraft that could enter service by 2030. They basically modeled a 9-person, 19-person, and 90-person aircraft to see how those aircraft could be more efficient and how they would affect the CO2 emissions. Good news is electric aircraft they modeled could provide an estimated 49% to 88% reduction in CO2 relative to current uh, fossil-fueled aircraft. They could be 2.1 to 3.2 times more energy efficient overall. Even when powered or charged off of the existing electric grid, which itself is often, unfortunately, uh, powered by fossil fuel. So that was yes. an interesting point. Yeah, that that was so. So even even if everything else remains the same, that that helps things quite a bit. Battery technology improvement will be needed. Continued battery improvement will be needed to make this 
any electric aviation possible at scale, and then reducing the weight of the aircraft could significantly increase the range and make this a purely electric aircraft much more feasible. One of the things that they they point out as a, a limiting factor is the range of the aircraft limited to a hundred and some odd kilometers with current type batteries. They could enable missions up to 280 kilometers carrying 90 passengers if they by if 2050. Technology, by 2050 if battery technology continues to approve. So so there's good news. But... There's bad news. There's bad news in the in the respect that there is not good enough news, but it's uh, it, the report is worth reading. And again, we will link to that in the show notes. Wow, there's a lot of homework in this episode. Yeah, there is. Well, we'll give you the the, the TLDR here is that uh, current battery technology and even the trajectory of battery technology progression is just not good enough to make mm-hmm. to make any practical use pure of, electric right. aircraft maybe you know if some certain flight test programs can clear up their act a hydrogen hybrid battery powered aircraft could uh, be the future but looking right now that a pure electric battery electric aircraft just it, it ain't it yeah the report's worth reading but a, a little not unexpected, but still disappointing nonetheless. No, give me some good news. We close the show. We close the show with Rowdy. Tell me more. Rowdy the cat was at Boston's Logan Airport for a few weeks and kept giving employees, the family, animal experts, anybody you can think of the slip. This cat was coming home with its family from Germany. Lufthansa landed in Boston. The Lufthansa flight landed in Boston. The cat escaped and went chasing birds. As one does. Let's see. They had uh, Lufthansa personnel. They had construction workers at the airport. They had animal welfare folks. They had wildlife cameras. They had non-injurious traps. They kept finding the cat. The cat could never be caught. Now the cat has been caught and is reunited with uh, with their owners and, and their family. So Rowdy, you had a good run. It was fun while it lasted. It's time to go home. All right. Good for Rowdy. Good for the owners. This happens every now and then. Uh, you Typically, when uh, someone is taking a cat through security, since you have to take the the cat out of the carrier and walk through the metal detector. And at that point, the cat uh, might see a bird. And I'm looking at my cat right now, looking out the window at a bird. And I'm sure if the door was open, <laughs> she would love to go out there and, and attack the bird. But I think I remember what, a case at JFK a couple of years ago where a similar situation where a cat got in the rafters and was on the loose for weeks and weeks until it just decided to do what cats do and say, okay, I'm done. Yeah. I mean, when the, when the cat decides. Mm-hmm. And, and that's and that's exactly what happened here. The cat just was like, "Okay, I'm ready to go home." Yep. And that's exactly what happened. That's our show. That's that's the podcast for the week. That was that was a full show. I am either sorry about all the homework, or you're welcome. In case you were looking for something to do over the weekend. In any case, if you are listening and are off to Farnborough, good luck. Stay cool. Drink lots of water, which is really good advice whether you're off to a sweltering air show or not. 
everyone. Thank you so much for listening. This has been episode 172 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.